I invite you all to remain standing, if we can. Our uh, scripture reading this morning is only two verses. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Pray with me one more time, if you would. God Almighty, as we turn now to your word, I pray that you would truly speak to us this morning. Lord, as Moses heard your voice speaking from the burning bush, as Israel heard your voice on Mount Sinai, Lord, as the disciples heard your voice from out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I pray that we would hear your voice this morning. Lord, let these not be my words that I say. Let this not be some speech that I've written. Lord, I pray that if there's anything you intend me to say this morning, that I would say it. I pray that if there's anything that I say that isn't your words for these people this morning, oh God, I pray that you would erase those words from our mind. Lord, bring them to nothing. I pray that if there's anything I forget to say or won't say, oh God, that you would impress those truths on these hearts anyway. Speak to us, oh God. Soften our hearts so that as we hear your words, you would convict us and encourage us and be with us this morning. Oh God Almighty. Amen. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Did we all have a good 4th of July weekend, Independence Day weekend? Yes, I have two head nods, so it must have been rip-roaringly exciting. Everyone has all of their fingers, I think, after, after the fireworks, so I'm assuming it couldn't have gone that badly, but maybe that also means that it wasn't that great either. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm glad to have you all back. Um, it is July, it is nice outside, and we are here to worship God this morning. And I'm so glad that we are gathered together to hear God's words for us this morning. What do you love? What are the things in your life? I heard someone whisper God. That's the correct answer. But what's the real answer? What do you love? Sure, in your heart you would answer, I I love Jesus, I love God, I love his church, and I praise God for that. But what does your life say that you love? What does your calendar say that you love? What does your checkbook say that you love? What do your priorities say that you love? If you're going to ask your family members, you say, you know, put aside this whole God thing, put aside the fact that you know I'm a Christian and you know that this is what I'm supposed to love. What do I actually love? What would the answer to that be? I've heard the illustration, and perhaps you have as well, that you can take a jar and you can fill it with golf balls, right? This is familiar to a couple of you. You can fill it with golf balls, but if it's full of golf balls, even though it's full, it's not really full. Because you can take sand and you can pour it inside of that jar as well and it'll fill it up again. 
The sand will just kind of settle around the golf balls because the golf balls don't take up all the space. But even if you fill that jar up with sand, it's not really full because even though sand is really, really fine and it fills whatever it's in, you can still pour a glass of water in there and the water will fill that jar to the top and then it will be really full. You can tell what things you truly love by looking at what the golf balls are in your life. What do you put in your life first? What do you put in your calendar first? What do you allow to take precedence and not be moved for anything else? What do you love? Our text this morning... We're picking up on what we preached on last week. Our text this morning is the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for listen up, hear these words. But it doesn't mean just, you know, listen. It doesn't mean just allow the words to bounce off your eardrums. It means listen and follow these instructions. Listen and obey. An ancient Jewish person would have prayed this prayer every single day. They would have allowed it to mold their hearts. They would have allowed it to mold their lives. This was core to the ancient Jewish faith. This is core to what the Old Testament teaches. And last week we looked at the first verse of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel... Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And we talked about what this means. God's name, usually translated in English versions as the Lord in all caps. God's name is Yahweh. Yahweh simply means he is. So when we're talking about God's name, when we're talking about his core character, when we're talking about what God is really like, the best way to describe him is just he is. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't need anything. He just is. God is one. He is unique above all of the other deities that exist, all of the other things that vie for our attention, all of the gods of Egypt. He's greater than sin and death itself. He is greater than all of them, and he is worthy of worship because of what he has done. But God is our God as well. He's the God who went down into Egypt to pull out a people to be his treasured possession. He adopted Israel. He brought them out to Mount Sinai and said, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And that's what he's done with us as well. By his death on the cross, he has chosen us in him. And he said, you all, the church, are going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. So that we, when we gather here as Christians... We can rejoice because the God who is, the God who is above all, is our God. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. But this morning we come to the second verse. Last week we looked at the truth, right? The statement of fact. And today we look at the command. The command follows the statement of fact. It flows out from it. Because if we truly hear, if we truly listen to what truth is, if we truly hear that God is above all and that he is uniquely to be praised among all the other gods and he is indeed our God, if all of that is true and we hear and we understand truly, then the command that follows will be easily 
obeyed. The command is this, love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. We've talked about the definition of love in previous weeks, but it's worth going through again. In our modern culture, when we think of love, right, we think of either a physical or an emotional or a relational attraction to someone else, right? When, when a young man, you know, when he's like 13, I look forward to the day when my son is going through puberty and dealing with all of these, you know, hormones and emotions. And like he, there's going to be some girl who he thinks that he's in love with because he likes her, right? I think we've, we've, all, we've all been there. We, we know what that's like. But what we, what we experience as attraction isn't necessarily love. We call it love, and it's a form of love. But love, at least here, is something far deeper, far more serious than that surface-level attraction. See, in, modern, in the modern-day culture, we often think that, that first layer of love is a grounds for a marriage. Right? If, you, if you're attracted to somebody, if you like spending time with them, if you think they're cute, you should go and get married to them and, and live with them. And, but there's usually a time when that comes to an end. You know, 20 years on, when you look in the past and your spouse has gained 50 pounds and their interests have maybe diverged from yours a little bit, that first layer of attraction sometimes wanes, right? But there should be a second layer of attraction. A second layer of love. Maybe a better word for it is loyalty. See, even if you don't love your spouse every day. I've been married for three years to my wonderful and amazing wife, and there are some days, don't tell her this, there are some days where I don't love my wife. That first level. Some days I'm just, some days she just annoys me. And to be completely fair to her, it's not her that's annoying me. It's just my selfishness that doesn't want to be bothered or disturbed or anything. But there are some mornings where she says, Andrew, can you do this? And I say, yes, I will. I don't want to. I don't want to do this thing. I just want to be on my own and drink coffee by myself in the morning and just experience silence for like two hours. And I would love that. And I, I don't, like that first level of love just isn't there all the time. But I still serve my wife because I love her, even when I don't love her. Does that make sense? Because true love, a love that you've experienced if you've been married for any significant amount of time, if there's someone in your life who you've been close to for a long period of time, a parent, a friend, a brother, a sister, true love is loyalty. So when Israel here is commanded to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, it's not talking about some kind of physical or emotional or relational attraction. That would be kind of weird. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about having your heart full all the time about, oh, I'm just in love with God. I love serving him and I love doing all these things. That's not really the idea. Marriage is a covenant That's not a word that we use a lot, covenant. But it's something, it's an idea that shows up in the Bible over and over and over. And it's a relationship. It's a relationship built on loyalty. 
Marriage is a covenant. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he entered into a covenant relationship with them. That covenant is based on what God did for them, right? He redeemed them from Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea, through the place of death, to escape death, brought them out to Mount Sinai, and said, I am, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. God made a covenant with them. One of the words God uses for a covenant is love. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we, when we preached on Israel being God's treasured possession. God loves them. And the reason given is just because God loves them. He loves them because he loves them. Which means God has adopted them as his people. God is going to be loyal to his people. And he calls for loyalty back. Love the Lord your God. Be loyal to Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And do so, according to this verse, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. With everything that is in you. I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but there's, there's some Hebrew here that's, that's actually really interesting. The word heart and the word soul, it just refers to your mind and it refers to your, your inward being. So with all of your decisions, all of your intentions, all of your intellect, all of your emotions, everything that is inside you, you're supposed to love God. But that third word, strength, is actually an adverb. Love God with all of your very much. Love God with all of your exceedingly. Love God with all of your a lot. And the idea here is that Israel's loyalty to God should not be something that comes in lip service. It should not be something that they just say. It shouldn't be something, oh, they go to the, you know, they go to the temple to offer a sacrifice when the festival says. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not this. Israel is supposed to love God with everything that they have. With all of their heart, with all of their mind, with all of their very, very muchness, Israel is supposed to love God. The reason is because God loved them first. God brought them out of the land of Egypt. He adopted them. He said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I have chosen to love you. So because I have chosen to love you, love me back. Be loyal to me. Obey my commands, not begrudgingly, but with a full heart, knowing that I am the God who brought you out of Egypt and has given you what is best for you. We, this past week, um, as Americans, celebrated Independence Day. One of the things that we celebrate, celebrated on Independence Day and I guess we celebrate in an ongoing way, is freedom of religion and freedom of assembly. In this country, we have constitutionally guaranteed freedoms that the Congress isn't supposed to make any law about the establishment of religion. They can't say, oh, the Episcopalians are the official religion and the Presbyterians are on the outs. They can't, they can't do that. It's against, it's against the law. It's against the Constitution. The government can't stop us from assembling together on a Sunday morning. There are places where that happens. China, North Korea, places where churches are broken up, places where Christians cannot worship without being harassed. 
by their government. And I think most of the time we count that as a blessing, and I think that is a blessing. But if I can speak freely and push back on that a little bit, I think it might also be a little bit of a curse. And hear me out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany uh, prior to World War II and during World War II. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. The Cost of Discipleship. It's a really, really good book. I recommend reading it. If you don't get through the entire thing, at least read the first chapter. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. It's really, really good. In that book, he talks about the distinction between cheap grace and costly grace. Grace that is cheap and doesn't demand a lot of you, and grace that costs much. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is someone who knew what it means to experience the cost of discipleship. In an age, in a place, right, Europe in the 20th century, there were not a lot of martyrs for their faith. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave his life as a Christian because his faith would not reconcile with Nazi Germany. He felt he couldn't go along with it. Eventually, he wound up in a concentration camp. He wound up losing his life just a couple days before the Allies liberated where he was being held. He was killed for his faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew what costly discipleship meant. For most of Christian history, to be baptized, to convert to Christianity, to come to the faith meant costing a lot. In some places, even today, if you get baptized and you come to Jesus and you say, I'm not Muslim anymore, I'm Christian, it costs you your family. It costs you your place in society. It may cost you your life. But in Flint, Michigan, in 2019, as we are blessed by the freedom of religion and blessed by the freedom of assembly, it doesn't cost a lot to be a Christian. None of us, as far as I know, are risking our lives by being here this morning. None of us are risking our jobs by calling ourselves Christian. None of us are being kicked out of our families because we, we proclaim the name of Jesus Christ as Savior. Maybe that last one's true for a couple of you. But for the most part, it doesn't cost anything to be a Christian in today's place, today's day and age. Maybe it costs you a little bit. Maybe it gains you something in the world to say, hey, I'm a Christian. Oh, you go to church. That's good. I have a higher respect for you. But the freedoms that we enjoy also mean that the costly discipleship that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about, that Christians have experienced throughout history, it's not right in front of our faces. It's not something that we're necessarily familiar with. But discipleship, but following Jesus was supposed to be something, is supposed to be something that costs us our very lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a quote that, that stuck with me and it continues to stay with me. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
The quote from Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is Jesus himself speaking. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Pick up your cross every day and follow me. For whoever would save his life, if you want to save your life, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The idea of picking up our cross, right? The idea of a cross itself, it's it's so familiar to our vernacular that sometimes we lose its meaning. You know how sometimes you say a word a lot and it kind of loses its original meaning just because you've said it so much? Sometimes the word cross, I think, we we miss what it is, right? A cross is a nice nice piece of um, stained glass. Maybe you have a nice wooden one hanging up somewhere. But a cross in that day was not a piece of decoration. It was not something to be worn around your neck. It was a method of execution. I was talking with my wife about how to to illustrate this in in modern day times. And what I'm about to say, she actually warned me that I shouldn't say. She said, Andrew, that might be a little too strong. And I was like, maybe. But also, what Jesus said was really strong, so I feel like that's the best way to get it across. We talked a little bit, and eventually she said, yeah, you probably need to say it. If Jesus were saying this today, he might be saying, tie a noose around your neck every day if you're going to follow me. Because the decision to follow Jesus is a decision to deny yourself. It's to step away from your old way of life. It's to give up what previously you had held dear, and it's to follow Jesus and, if necessary, lose your life. The disciples who followed Jesus lost their lives. None by the noose, as far as I know. Some were crucified, some were beheaded. One was skinned alive because he followed his Savior. That's the call that we have. That's the costly grace that Bonhoeffer was talking about. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You say, that's kind of a lot? Yeah, it is. Why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to give up their life and come and follow Jesus? The answer is found in another parable Jesus told. He said, there was a man who was walking through a field... And he tripped over something. And he bends down and he kind of uncovers what's there and he finds a treasure chest. And he opens this chest and it's filled with gold and precious jewels and stones. It's filled with treasure. So this man, he kind of covers it up again, doesn't want anyone else to find it. He goes and sells everything that he has. Sells his house, sells his car, Sells his dog. Sells everything. And he goes and he buys that field. Because he knows that what's about to be gained is so much better than what it is that he had. The life that Jesus offers us is better than the life he's calling us to give up. Let me say that again. The life that Jesus offers us is better than the life that he is calling us to give up. There's a picture, an illustration that we use throughout our Ephesians series, and I think it's worth bringing up here. 
right? Paul in Ephesians looks forward to the day in which Jesus is head over all things, where Jesus finally brings about the new creation. But we, as the people of God, are how God is bringing about that new creation in the present. So there's coming a day when that creation comes in full, and we live in the middle of the old creation, right? When we get up, when we you know, brush our teeth, when we go to the store, when we do all of those things, we are living in a fallen, broken world. But when we come in here, metaphorically, when we walk through these doors, we enter a new creation space. This is a little pocket of what's to come. It's a foretaste of what's coming. So the way we do things here is better than the way they do them out there. We love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Out there they say, no, love yourself first. Seek first the kingdom of God. In here, we know that the way to true happiness, the way to true joy is to follow God's commands. Out there they say, no, the way to, the way to experience true joy is just to be real with yourself. To be honest with what it is that you want. But we know that what is coming is better than what is. And when we come into this room, we participate in bringing the future to the now. And when we pick up our cross and follow Jesus, it's an acknowledgement. When we tie a noose around our neck every morning and follow Jesus to his execution, it's an acknowledgement that the life Jesus is bringing by his death and resurrection is better than the life he's calling us away from. We are following Christ into the new creation as we join with his people with nooses tied around our neck in a discipleship, in a Christianity that calls us to give up everything to buy a field that's filled with treasure. Oftentimes, we conceive of the church as something added to your life, right? Sometimes we, we mishear Jesus when he says, come follow me, come deny yourself, come tie a noose around your neck because that's the way to salvation. We mishear him, and we hear Jesus say, hey, you know, if you go to church on Sunday, it'll be better for your spiritual life. If you're looking for true self-satisfaction, you might want to, you know, add a little bit of Jesus to your life. Right? If you've got a little bit of extra weight on you, you go to the gym. If you're a little bored or lonely, you go read a book or talk to somebody. If you're feeling a little spiritually dry, you go to church. There's just something you add to your life. There are those who, who tell you lies that say, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be happy and healthy. God's going to bless you materially if you just come to church. Or if they're really sinister, they say, if you donate to our ministry, then God's going to bless you with even more money. Friends, that's not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is one that demands our whole being. The message of Jesus sounds like love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all of your very muchness. The message of Jesus sounds like come and follow me. Deny yourself. Walk away from your old life. Bear your cross. Tie a noose around your neck. Because you're following me into the new creation. That is Christianity. Because we know that following Jesus with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our might, that is the way to truly experience blessing. Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light and may look heavy, 
But the way in which God has intended us to live is better than the way that we want to live. And he calls us away from a previous life. He says, no, 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 come follow me. People of God, if we truly follow Christ, it will cost us. If we truly follow Christ, it will cost us. At the very least, bare minimum, it will cost us our sin. At the very least, God calls us to every day repent of our sins, to look inside our heart, to name those things that are offensive to him, that are harmful to us and the people around us. He calls us to repent of them, to turn away from them and to turn to him. At the very least, it will cost you your sin. But you will find freedom from your sin. It may cost you your reputation in your social circles. It may cost you your reputation at work. It may cost you a raise. It may cost you friends. I don't think that we're at this place in Flint, Michigan in 2019, but there are areas of this country where certainly being a Christian gets you pushed to the outside of social circles and social conversations. Maybe some places here. Following Jesus may cost you. It will cost you your time. It will cost you your money. It may very well cost you your life. But we know that the way into the new creation is to follow Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Whether that means we follow him literally to death, whether that means that it just means giving up our time, giving up our money, whether it just means giving up our sin, we know that following him is the path to a better life. And he has come to show us the way. So I turn back to the question we asked at first. And they ask you, what do you love? What are the golf balls that you fill your life with? What are the things that you won't move for anything else? What does your checkbook say that you love? What does your calendar say that you love? Because following Jesus is more than coming to church on a Sunday morning. Following Jesus is more than having Christian on your Facebook page underneath the religion category. Following Jesus is giving up who we are, coming and living life as he has called us to live it. It means spending your time mentoring those who are younger in the faith than you. It means spending your money giving it to this church, giving it to a local charity, giving it to someone who needs it more than you. Following Jesus means making sacrifices for the advancement of the kingdom of God. But if we know who God is, if we know truly that God is the God who is above all, that God is the God who is, that he is uniquely to be praised, that he is uniquely to be worshipped, but he is even though he is above all, he has come down to save us. If we truly know that, 
then following Jesus will be just like that man who sold all of his possessions. Yes, he gave up so much, but he gained so much more. I urge you, Christians, deny yourself. Take up the cross. Tie a noose around your neck. Be prepared for death. But know that following Jesus is the way to eternal life. And it's found in him, in him alone. Will you pray with me?